1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, we're pleased to welcome uh, Reverend Dr. Will Williman to be part of the conversation here on Rector's Cupboard today. Uh, Professor Williman is from Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. He's also Bishop in the United Methodist Church and Dean of Chapel at Duke University. We'll have uh, uh, Will Williman's website in our episode notes, and there's lots to follow there, lots of books to take a look at, and all kinds of work that you would be interested in. Uh, so we'll get right to it. Um, Will, uh, one, I think the first place that I came across your work, well, it was, it was you actually, um, was a coworker and myself were at a youth specialties convention. Do you remember, you, you obviously remember doing Oh yeah, that. brings back good memories, youth specialties. Yeah, it must yeah. have been in, I don't know if it was in Denver or San Diego or somewhere like that, right? They, they did like a West Coast one and an East Coast one. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember you preaching, you were one of the general session uh, speakers. And the first place that I kind of encountered this, I, I think you were telling the story of a monastic or somebody, somebody who was a bit of a shit disturber kind of person that like, uh, um, you know, just, just didn't take himself too seriously. And, and I remember being like going back after that and being so grateful that someone was willing to speak plainly and the truth and kind of in this humorous way, but say something um, so significant. So, um, you're known as a storyteller, and I wanted to ask you if you could start off our time together here by giving us a bit of an account of a story from uh, one of your recent books. Uh, you probably have told it elsewhere as well, but I don't remember all the details, so you can tell me again. All I remember is that it was a story of you, I think, uh, being in a some kind of group photo in a religious context, so it's a group of boys who've... Um, oh. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, a minister, a, a minister <clears throat> doctor, and you didn't have a tie. You remember that story? I do. Let us hear. I do. In fact, a local uh, Christian film company has made a film out of it. Uh, I'm not in the film, but got a cute little boy that's in the film, cuter than I was. Um, no, it was when I was. Um, about 10 years old, I was in the membership class at Buncombe Street United Methodist Church. It was Methodist Church then. And um, on Thursday afternoon, a grim time after school was over, we all were to show up at church and they took us through various instruction. It, uh, as I say, it was, it was supposed to be instruction in the history and doctrine of the Methodist Church. So the history took a while. The doctrine we can get over in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but uh, I walked in that fateful Thursday and was greeted by the um, this formidable woman in charge. And uh, she said, where's your tie? And I said, tie? And she says, 
everyone was told to wear a tie. All the other boys have ties on. Even Stanley Starnes has a tie on. We're having our picture taken by a professional photographer on the steps of the church with Dr. Herbert. Uh, you don't have on a tie. So I froze, fighting back tears. I wheeled around and I decided what I would do. I ran out to the church parking lot and went out to his reserve parking space and waited. And Dr. Herbert pulls his blue, light blue Plymouth into the parking space. And so Dr. Herbert was a saintly uh, old pastor of Buncombe Street. And uh, it gets out. And I said, uh, Dr. Herbert, you don't know me, but I'm William Willimon. And I'm in the confirmation class. And um, they said that we were told to wear ties, but I didn't get the message. Or maybe my mother didn't tell me. But anyway, I don't even want to be in the photo. And I'll just step aside. And uh, since I don't have on a tie. And he looked down at me and he said, uh, ties, uh, son, uh, have you had theological training? And I said, no, all I've had is this class. And he said, uh, well, I've had advanced theological training and I'm thinking about uh, the rules of the Methodist connection and I know no rule which says that one has to wear a tie uh, to be a Methodist. And uh, so I said, oh, and he says, come along. And so he went into the room where the other uh, more obedient children were gathered. And uh, the uh, woman said, uh, well, everybody's here and everybody is dressed appropriately except for one. And Dr. Herbert said, uh, oh, what a grand group of children. This, this is wonderful. Uh, he said, now we're, we're getting ready to go out and have our picture. You're the newest members of our congregation. Uh, but before we go out, may I just make one uh, uh, comment? Uh, I'm wearing a tie because I'm the pastor in charge of this congregation. Uh, I'm required to wear ties, even on a Thursday. But fortunately, none of you uh, suffer under any such requirement. So I'd like all the boys, please remove your ties before uh, we have our picture because the purpose of these proceedings is to to get everyone in the picture. Thank you. Mm. And looking back, I say, God is like Dr. Herbert yeah. it, without the Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> Although the, the, the light blue Plymouth is pretty nice. The... Um, when you recall that story, I mean, obviously it, it's it's in your memory. It's something that is there. And as a ten-year-old child, you, we don't always know. Like looking back to being ten, why do we remember certain things and not others? This is clearly a memory that you have. But I would imagine you didn't equate at the time that God was like that. But now, you know, it was through some theological learning that you is yeah. that true that you were able to look back and go, that's why that resonated with me. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, God, I think, uh, can be clearly known to us, but usually only in the rearview mirror. I mean, it's only in looking back. And you think about all those times in your life when you kind of wake up and says, wait a minute, I thought that was just a weird coincidence. Or I thought that was because I'd had too much to drink or was under stress or something. Hey, I, I think that was Jesus. That that, that was God. And um and it also means, I remember when I was in seminary, 
uh, one of my professors, uh, James Didis, had done a nationwide study uh, trying to discern uh, characteristics of people going into the ministry. And he came up with the theory of the little adult. And that is that uh, he said to the seminarians gathered there, if, if, you've been, if you were the child that the teacher led, uh, left in charge of the class when the teacher had to go down to the principal's office to get a stapler, uh, if you were that child, if, if you were elected to class office, if the election was based on respect, but not on popularity, um, then you are what I would call a little adult. You were more successful at being an adult than a child. And therefore, one attraction of the ordained ministry is that uh, you get to be the adult. Uh, you get to enforce adult values on all these wayward adults. And so you're a past. Well, one of the seminarians, I think with tears in his eyes, he rose up and he said, uh, this is terrible. Um, I thought I was here in seminary because of a call from God, and you're telling me that my call is just a result of the effect of people on me and my personality? And Didis looked around and he said, uh, excuse me, has, has God stopped calling other people? Yeah. Is, is God stopped calling people through other people? I, I'm sorry, I thought that was the way God worked. <laughs> and so it does mean that that it's the nature of an incarnational God uh, to enlist uh, human agents. And um, so you can expect to have these instances where you have a casual conversation with someone and you just walk away and say, wait a minute, I think I'm hearing my name called. I, I, I think something is being said to me that I couldn't say to myself. Do you, I'm, I mean, when you think of that that minister in that in that story, in that scene, he clearly was formed to do that kind of thing, to be ready, in a sense, to see this one child who was being left out or made to feel less. Um, and then he, I mean, I, lo I love your example of this kind of little adult. He he was obviously seeking to embrace you, but I would imagine what he was doing also had an impact on the adults around him that they were trying to maintain some kind of standard and he does something better than that, right? Now I've seen that in your work that you kind of not only remember being a child in that story, but that you all have also in your work, I would think, I hope this is okay to say, tried to emulate that minister that day, that you have oh. maybe encountered depictions of God mm -hmm. oh, gosh, I... that you find upsetting and so you take on his role. Um, do you, I mean, is that is that true in your work that, that you, uh, see God portrayed in ways that just make you upset and shake your head, and so you try to write or speak or challenge those. Um, you know, maybe I have, I, not as much as I'm, I should have, uh, yeah. probably. But uh, I, I do think becoming a Christian is is generally is an apprenticeship. Um, I know very few people, uh, you know, who are Christian because of a book they read or they did a study of the various uh, religions of the world and said, hey, Christianity makes a lot of sense, I'll go with that. Uh, I think more typically is we 
we take up a way of life that we observe in others. Mm. Uh, maybe along the way, we will ask people, uh, why are you different? Or why do you seem to care when others don't or something? Mm -hmm. And that gives them an opportunity to witness and say, well, let me explain to you, uh, Jesus. <clears throat> um, mm. I, I, so I think, but that does mean that one of the responsibilities of being a Christian is to be an example. Uh, when I'm ordained, uh, I, the bishop laid hands on my head and said, you're to be an example to the flock. And I said, Get, does that mean I can take a drink on occasion and, and uh, you know, and, you know, in the privacy of your parsonage, yes, uh, but not, don't make a fool out of yourself in public. Um, you know, and it, it uh, as Stanley Harawas has said, uh, the world is right in judging Jesus <laughs> on the basis of the lives he's capable of producing. Mm -hmm. Now, that sends a chill down your spine as you think of your own life and all, but um, that's kind of the way he works. And I love those moments where Jesus, uh, like in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the light of the world. Matthew, and he looks at this ragtag group of knuckleheads and, and yokels and says, you're the light of the world. Shine. Uh, yeah. And you expect the next verse to be, are you kidding? What have we done throughout this gospel to give you any justification for thinking you can trust us to do anything? And, uh, well, I, I Jesus. Um, uh, you you use the word knucklehead and yokel and uh and one of the things that uh i've encountered in your work and now the last two things that i've read of yours accidental preacher and uh stories oh thank um, you and uh, so this this happens in those books <clears throat> but i've seen it elsewhere as well that you're not and i used the term when we were talking in advance of this um my British friends have that term and it, it's not, I don't think it's like vulgar or disrespectful in, in the way they use it, but it, it can sound a bit crass to us. They say, take the piss out of someone, right? That, and I see <laughs> the word knucklehead and yokel. And, and, um, and then you mentioned Stanley Hauerwas. I don't want to put those three together, by the way. But, <laughs> but um, you have a wonderful imitation in your, in your audio book that I was listening to of Stanley Hauerwas, this highly intelligent, educated, like insightful <laughs> man. And you just make him sound so human. Um, it's one of the things I love about your work is that you're not afraid, at least I, it, as the listener and the reader, I picked this up that you're not afraid to kind of call people on their humanity, even the kind of rough edges or the ridiculous things. And yet I think it um, conveys such a deep love for people. Um, do you get in trouble for some of that stuff? Do some people go, well, you shouldn't be talking about people like that. Um, yeah, I, uh, I have. Yeah. Um, I, I know I teach an introduction to ordained leadership class and, uh, uh, and I, I try to do the best I can to give these seminarians a, a, a view of the church uh, that's realistic, uh, that's appropriately sober in its assessment of clergy and parishioners and all. But I know at, at the end of one class, uh, this dear young man uh, came up to me and he said, um, we're all the churches you serve 
full of self-centered racist bastards? And I said, yes. Uh, <laughs> I said, you got a problem with the way Jesus works, kid? Uh, I don't like these people either, but you know, Jesus died for them. I, anyway, um, I, I guess I, I really think <laughs> this is big, but I think the Lord has blessed me with a kind of um, holy impatience mm. with a kind of spirituality. I don't like that word, but uh, piety. Well, I don't like that word either, but yeah. um, in people that I think, think is uh that is betrays the gospel uh stanley harawas uh, speaking of him he gets criticism for occasionally using profanity and some of the remarks he makes but uh, you know i say hey he's a methodist he he's he it it took him years till he could breathe after the you know, the smothering Methodist piety and sweetness, and he's fighting his way out, and God bless him, and we need that. And we're just reading the other day, uh, Carl Bart saying to his seminary in the 1920s, um, something to the effect of, isn't it interesting that our Lord does not appear to be attracted to pious, sincere people? I, I don't I enjoy working with them. <laughs> anyway, it just so um, yeah, and and you know Jesus, he was criticized for hanging out with people like me, and uh, the uh, a woman was talking about uh, tuning into her church during the during our pandemic, and uh, they were online. And she said, here was the church staff in this empty sanctuary, all of them wearing masks. And uh, as they were going through this recorded service, and it, it, it looked like the Sandinistas had taken over Duke Chapel. It, it just, and said it was just so silly. But, you know, and, and then said, you know, is it not enough that you are self-righteous uh, uh, in your religion against all of us sinners and everything. Now, now you've got to wear a mask yeah. when you're being filmed with two other people. <laughs> you know, is there no limit to your self-righteous piety? You know, so. and, and there isn't, of course. Uh, and and the, I know the answer to that. <laughs> no, actually. Uh, and uh, I just, I don't know. I'm... I give thanks that that I've always been impressed uh, by the uh, that uh, Harawas was quoted one time as saying uh, when somebody said something about pietism, he said, "I'm the last goddamn pietist left." <laughs> and uh, I said, "Now it's it's, it's going to take him a few minutes to explain that uh, to you. He, <laughs> he has an explanation. I'm sure but, he does. Yeah. Uh, but so, you know, so." Allison, um, yeah, no, I say, uh, so the, you, you fascinate me. Like I, I love listening to you. I love reading, uh, oh, the, the, wonderful. The, the small portion of your 80 books that I have, uh, <laughs> and I have worked my way through. Um, and I think what strikes me most is you're, you're very different than a lot of, uh, pastors that I've encountered in the fact that I think how you perceive your job 
as a pastor, what your role is, uh, is very different from what I've encountered, which has only been mostly evangelical. Like, I think in like the best possible way of meaning it, like you're okay with people not liking you and you're okay with not necessarily going with like what the popular view of things is. Um, but I think a lot of pastors still can feel that their, their role is, uh, to be liked by their congregation. And instead of maybe, I feel like you take, take a little bit of a different perspective. And I was wondering if you could tell us what you kind of view the role of a pastor to actually be. Mm, um, I, I think the role of the pastor is to, uh, lead people. I almost use the word care, but we've kind of ruined that word, but to, mm. to lead, uh, Jesus people in his name. And, um, for me, the biggest challenge is that is in his name. And, uh, we, we got to love people, but we got to love them like Jesus does. And that isn't easy. And, uh, yeah. I'm I'm afraid though that when pastors don't work at that, if that's not their prayer, uh, what they try to do is to be liked and to be popular. Mm -hmm. And um, ooh, that's that that's a hard road. Um, the uh, generally we we I think we we're attracted to people and we like people uh, who tell us lies about ourselves. I mean, <laughs> look at who's our president. How did he, anyway. Um, and um, yes, we do look at that and it's very, I know I, I just, I knew you wanted me to say that. And, uh, <laughs> we didn't time you for that. But. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I was out in Vancouver, your place. Mm -hmm. And I was at the uh, cathedral, the, the Anglican Cathedral. Oh, yeah, Christchurch Cathedral. Yeah, it's right downtown. And an amazing place and everything. Yeah. And uh, there was a protest going on against a building Donald Trump was trying to put up near the cathedral. Just People, downtown. Canadians. Yep. Did they ever put up that building? Or? They did. And yep. it's, got good, it's got oh, yeah. Trump right in front of it, the letters. and Yeah, I've had the same experience protesting uh, Trump. Um, and uh, anyway, during, the, during some meeting, uh, some sweet Canadian, and that's probably a tautology, but um, <laughs> uh, said, uh, uh, are, you, are you guys really going to elect Donald Trump as president, that man? And I said, that just shows how dumb you are. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Of course, we're not going to elect Donald Trump. You think we're crazy? Yeah. Come on. We're going to elect Hillary Clinton. And, and um, about two months later, I don't know if it was a dean of the cathedral, but somebody there wrote me an email and said, now, now that Donald Trump is president, don't you want to come back to Vancouver and apologize to all those oh people that you called idiots <laughs> and uninformed and ridiculous? And uh, so. And you uh, said no. Yeah. I said no. No, thank um, you. <laughs> no, we, we, we are actually that, that bad. Yeah. Um, but but I do think it's important for pastors uh, to aspire to more than simply care for and love of their congregations. I, it, that's why I say, you may disagree with me, but I say the most important thing a pastor does is, is preach. Because for my money, that's when 
after I've been ambulance chasing all week and running mm -hmm. around and saying, hey, how can I help you? Can, can I say, can I give you a little thought, help you make it through the day and all that kind of stuff? Um, that's when I, the word comes at me and I, and I say to the Lord, I'm not going to go out there and say that kind of stuff. I've already got the draperies hung in the parsonage and everything. I'm not going to say that. And the Lord said, just try to get out there. And, um, uh, and, and that's when you realize that, wow, church is more than a club, a, a mutual admiration society. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, it, it's, uh, it's about trying to be with Jesus who is determined to be with us. And hmm. so, yeah, have this, you have this realistic view of people. I don't find it hopeless at all. Um, I've been watching a show recently. I don't know if you've come across it. It's a Netflix thing called afterlife. It's actually Ricky Gervais. Uh, yes. And yeah. Yeah. So you know the show? Yeah. Uh, my wife wouldn't watch the whole thing with me. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because like like Gervais, there's lots that has like. This of course, of course, my wife said, you know, I I have to live with this kind of cynicism. Yeah, enough well, here at home without <laughs> watching Ricky, Ricky Gervais do it. Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was thinking of that though because I was thinking how it's it appears to be kind of a cynicism, but but one of the things that he does really well, and I've I've seen it in in. Um, some of your work as I've read it or listened to you is that he, he, I would argue takes a realistic view of a person. He can kind of like seem to be kind of attacking them, but there's this, there's this deep um, awareness of the humanity and respect of the humanity for the other person in these characters that he draws. So it's really interesting. But anyway, I wanted to ask you before we get to, I want to talk about vocation. Um, uh, one of the funniest things in some of your work is that you remember some of the, some of the critiques that oh, that was a wonderful part. part. <laughs> uh, of your own, whether it's preaching or leading or being, uh, can you, do you remember some of those you could tell us or our listeners? Yeah, Kate, Kate Buller, uh, when Kate read the manuscript, uh, she said that ought to be up front, right out there, put that out there. And sometimes when I'm doing workshops with clergy, I try to mention those moments because some of these poor guys get so battered. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's a, um, yeah, I, you know, I remember I, I brought in a panel of pastors years ago in a class I was teaching at seminary, and uh, they were all preachers. We were talking about preaching, and one of the students said, uh, and the students, one of the students' question was, what do you do when people don't like what you say in a sermon or offended by it or something. Well, after it was over and we were processing this, the class was just astounded that not one single preacher on the panel took that in any way as negative. And they all responded about, oh yeah, I had a man tell me, he, he was so upset, he was just shaking. And, and uh, I said, look, settle down. Uh, you don't really, you're not, you, you, let's talk about this. And, and they were saying, you know, you, you preachers would really rather be heard mm. than, than agreed with <laughs> and accepted. And I said, you know, I, I think there's truth in that. Yeah. And that, uh, that, that beautiful moment that happens in your average church where somebody comes out and says to a pastor, you know, I was just, uh, I've never heard anything like that before. I don't know where you get that. I was really upset about this. Yeah. And what does the pastor do to say, hey, 
it got time for coffee Monday morning. Uh, how about that? Uh, let, let's talk it over. Or, uh, hey, we're, we we got time to explore this Wednesday night at the Covered Dish Supper, uh, the weekly meeting. Uh, uh, let, 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 let's talk. Uh, that'd be a good time. To, I'd like to hear more about that. So um, I, I think, you know, criticism comes with the story, mm-hmm. w- w- well, with the job, but it also comes with the story. And there have been moments when I felt I've been unfairly criticized, uh, generally all criticism I receive is unfair uh, and um, or hurt uh, by something someone has said or something. And it, it in, and by the grace of God in prayer or Bible study, uh, they've been, it's Jesus has been able to say, um, okay. Um, what about the word cross? Uh, do you not get, um, c- could I have been any more direct we, wasn't I up front? Didn't I tell you that there was? I had a nice cross for you to do. Uh, you know, don't come back to me whining and uh, that they don't like me or you know and uh, yeah uh, yeah. And there's I there's remember also, one yeah you like the ones that you recount and it's in I think particularly accidental preacher the memoir of yours but uh, and you kind of just list a bunch and you actually include some positive yeah. ones that are that are interspersed oh, with all these negative ones. brian mulrooney yeah. remember him yeah yes. what did he say about you again but he came out and he said uh why the hell can't catholics preach oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh <laughs> i said uh you'll have to take it up with catholics uh but that's, yeah, you're like it's not my realm <laughs> that that's a beautiful thing for you to say thank you Our, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was in that list, right? I think the one yeah. that resonated the most with me or made me like kind of sad on your behalf, and I know I probably shouldn't feel this, is actually wasn't about preaching. It was about your uh, in role as professor. When somebody in a, I don't remember what class, yeah. when a student in an anonymous, uh, you know, evaluation form uh, says all it was was story time with Will or something. <laughs> <laughs> that hurt. And if I could find that student, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm tracking them. I, I am ready. <laughs> to uh, uh and uh, i also remember this chaplain uh college chap uh, at duke uh the student who came to me he says hey I, I got a big uh i got a big issue i got a problem and uh related to my girlfriend and everything and i said oh well, let's talk he said hey i don't have time for the damn stories i, I just need to- <laughs> and I said, "Oh, gee, maybe I overdo that a little bit." Um, and uh, the um, yeah, That's I, I wanted to move to class last semester, and yeah. I said, uh, "You know, I'm up here giving 150 percent every class, and I'm pouring out my heart to you, just giving you the unvarnished truth." And I've just heard an expression. I did not know about it. But the expression is, okay, boomer. Oh, yeah. And uh, they froze. And I said, I expect that some of you have been responding to my truth uh, by sitting back, uh, you know who you are, and saying, okay, boomer. And they said, no, no, we wouldn't say that. And I said, Luke. And have you say, ever said that about me? And he said, maybe. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, I finished at the end of the semester, the last class, I ended on a crescendo um, from with Acts 9 and Saul become Paul. Anyway, and uh, so when I finished, they all sat there for a minute in silence. And then they all said in unison, okay, boomer. Oh, that's so, so good. <laughs> they redeemed it for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about preaching in a minute, but before we do, um, this concept of vocation, I think, I, I was resonating with me because I think it's something that is lost uh, in some ways in, in our current culture. You were mentioning the same thing, that vocation is spoken about less now than perhaps it has been in the past. Um, you talk about in uh, the, the line to remember in terms of vocation is that God hath made us and not ourselves. You said we're schooled in the fiction that our lives are our exclusive possession to use as we choose, uh, that we live this in that way of thinking, this uncalled for life, and that we are the sum of our astute choices in our lives. Uh, and then you say our lives are less interesting than the God who assigns us. So this concept of vocation or call, and I'm thinking about that, obviously some of us who've worked in churches have thought about that in kind of religious contexts or church contexts, but what about in in the larger concept context for people who aren't necessarily compelled towards religion? Uh, what might the recovery of the idea of vocation look like to you? Yeah, you know, and that, that's I think that is a weakness in my book that I so solidly beat the drum for the pastoral preaching vocation. And, and tried to express great gratitude that I was fortunate enough to be called into that mm -hmm. and and not to be president of General Motors. Um, and, um, and and so maybe I overstated that, but I, I, I think a major pastoral job is we are called to help other people Amen. find their callings. And I think some of the best moments of my ministry has been when I've looked at someone and said, uh, hmm, we need someone to take the youth on the mission trip to Appalachia. And the layperson says, I, I, I'm too busy for that. I have no interest in that. I said, that wasn't what I was saying to you. I'm saying to you that maybe God is saying to me that you should be the one to do that. And then I'm, I'm thinking, of it, and he did it. And, uh, it was life changing for him and for the kids and everybody. Uh, and I love those. And I think one sad thing is that we uh, vocation has often come to mean your job and that kind yeah. of Luther Calvin thing about whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, uh, computer programming. Um, I want to be fair to, I mean, it's, it's honest work. Right. Um, but, but come on, no, your vocation is discipleship and wherever you are, you're called to be a disciple and whatever state you find yourself, you're called a witness. And that's what I think we could do a much better job of helping people. I mean, I got, I got, I know people who the only reason they're surviving <laughs> in their job as a computer programmer. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you're listening to this, you are a computer programmer. Do not, but right, Todd, about they, that. They stopped listening because of the Zoom was glitching anyway. But oh, anyway. yeah, they, they yeah. All right, nerds, goodbye. Anyway, um, but that uh, 
I know people who can only endure the job that they have uh, because of what they do after the job for right. for, for Jesus uh, and and the work they do. And uh, so, uh, vocation is. A, and, and one of the great joys of being a pastor is you get a front row seat on watching Jesus just put the finger on interesting people. Um, and people show up and say, I just really feel God wants me to do so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And then I respond, did you inform the Lord <laughs> that you're not responsible, that we made you chair of the finance committee last year and you only came to one meeting. Does the Lord know about your attendance schedule? Um, to which the layperson will often say, Hey, the Lord chose you. And I said, okay, good point. That, that is a good point. Um, you got a point. And, and um, I'm, I just, in the current pandemic, uh, you know, I'm, uh, we we all are enamored of Dr. Fauci because he's the only like mentally sane person we've got at the microphone talking. And uh, I was thinking the other day, poor Dr. Fauci, who I understand is a very active Catholic. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't go into medicine to be a public leader. He didn't go into medicine to be uh, the nation's daddy and hold our hand through this crisis. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, he's all we got. And it's the Lord has said to him, step up there and yeah. try to talk in such a way that people might have hope that, you know, and, uh, and I think that's so typical of God doing that. And, uh, it, so I, I think this may, as I say, maybe in the book, um, I just think we evangelical Protestant type Christians uh, have made a mistake in speaking about salvation detached from vocation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking of Acts 9, I'm thinking of Saul become Paul. Uh, Jesus didn't say, hi, Saul, I'm showing up in your life. Uh, I want to forgive you of your sin. <laughs> hear Paul say, uh, did I ever say I was troubled about my sin? I don't think. Uh, uh, I, uh, I'm going to give you a meaningful life and help give uh, meaning to your marriage. You know? No. Uh, Jesus shows up and says, I got a job to do. I want my name to be taken before a bunch of pagans. Guess who's going to do it? And then I love where <laughs> when the voice, presumably the risen Christ, uh, speaks to Ananias. He said, I want you to go and lay hands on Saul. And Ananias said, wait, 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 wait. Is, that, that, is that the same Saul I've heard about? And uh, <laughs> the voice says, go. And then uh, the voice says, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer because of me. And wow. So evidently salvation, vocation, is it's not, you know, giving us a better life it's giving us a more complicated life because suddenly our life is being caught up into the purposes of god now do you do you think that that's something that in in general i don't know whether it'd be fair to say modern christianity like current christianity 
suffers from that. But I mean, you see, you certainly see certain strains of it. I think of like uh, prosperity gospel, where that's pretty much the main focus is your life will improve if you do A, B, C, yeah. D. Yeah. It turns God into a genie. Um, but where do you see kind of like, in one sense, like a, a recovery or redemption of some of that understanding? Um, do you think that that's going to come from from preachers? Do you think that that's going to come from, like, it, it does seem like Christianity is a, is got a very big spectrum. Um, how, how do we kind of filter through that? I, I guess correction mm. always comes uh, in the church among Christians. I think primarily through scripture. I mean, there's a reason Joel Osteen does not use much scripture. Good call. <laughs> I know Jesus. He's uncomfortable in these settings. Um, and um, so uh, I think uh, uh, I get corrected by scripture a lot. And uh, for instance, as a preacher, you know, uh, I'm reading a text. Jesus does some wonderful work. He tells a couple of great memorable stories and people say, well, where'd you get all the way is this? Who are you? Hey, let's kill him. And um, wow, it, it just keeps reminding me as a preacher, I'm sorry, the test, the validation of your ministry can't be whether they all affirm it. Yeah. It's, it's going to have to be somewhere else. I've, and I, I vote for like trying to be faithful to scripture. So I think it, we get corrected by scripture and, uh, I, I think that's, uh, to me, Jesus church discipleship as, as different as he means it to be. And one way he does that is through opening up his word and looking at it and, and, being judged by it. Mm -hmm. I have um, I have this quote from Marilyn Robinson I want to read, just thinking of you okay. speaking about preaching. She says, as a lay person who spent a great many hours listening to sermons, I have, other, I have an other than academic interest in preaching, an interest in the hope, and so many others bring into the extraordinary moment when someone attempts to speak in good faith about something that matters to people who attempt to listen in good faith. The circumstance is moving in itself, since we poor mortals are so far enmeshed in our frauds and our shenanigans, not to mention our self-deceptions, that a serious attempt at meaning, spoken and heard, is quite exceptional. Uh, and I think your reminder to us of the importance of preaching, and with that, of course, the importance of listening to sermons, um, taking them in, is something that's really helpful. I wanted to kind of move to, as we move to close. Uh, I think it's great, a great yeah, she's, She's and, and actually just back to the prosperity gospel. You you were mentioning Kate Bowler, so you you work with and and know Kate Bowler obviously in her experience and mm -hmm. her, um, and she helps a lot with this. I know her work, uh, her book yeah. Blessed, and then what's her what's her more memoir book called, Allison? Uh, uh, it's called Everything Every Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Right, yes, <laughs> beautifully, beautifully, beautifully. Uh, so I wanted to move to this concept. I was going to ask you, and you you can get there if you want as we come to a close. Um, obviously, Karl Barth has influenced a lot of your work, or you, even when you speak of vocation. 
um, I go right away to thinking about Bart's stress upon vocation, right? As that's the purpose of the call is, is vocation. Um, so if you wanted to kind of tell us about why Bart matters so much to you, but uh, I'm also thinking of Bart in, in your work, your talk about the future. And so in Christian faith, the idea that um, the future of Jesus Christ, as Bart would say, is what should be kind of shaping us more even than our consideration of our own future. Um, and you have this story uh, that, and it's a little bit, it's, it's another childhood story, but in this one, you're not the child. You're, you're older by this point about, I think it's your grandson, Will, on the beach. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and do you remember that story? You, you yep. Um, could you just tell us that story and what stood out to you about this scene? Because nothing really happens in the story, but uh, it's interesting. No, and I, I don't think of it as much as a story as, as just an episode uh, yeah. where I'm looking at a picture of when he first, we first took him to the beach and uh, I was prepared uh, for him to be frightened by the waves and all. Well, kind of typical, he just dove right in, uh, walked right in with me, holding my hand, and uh, loved to jump the waves and kept pushing on out, and, and I held him. And uh, Anyway, my daughter took a picture of us from behind, and there I am, yeah. stooped over, holding his hand, and there he is grasping my hand. And I, I love that picture, and I said, it, it's, uh, for me, a, a beautiful picture of kind of what grown-ups do what grandparents do we we take the little one by the hand we lead them in and say oh it's the sea it's the waves it's this life it's wonderful but i said i glanced at that picture uh the other day and uh, i and and suddenly i, I saw it differently as uh, who is leading whom here uh am i leading the little one out into life or is the little one leading me out into this great uh, gathering dark, this abyss, this huge sea that that uh, not too long from now, uh, I'm going to have to let him go and he will have to let me go <laughs> and that he'll venture on and I will uh, be engulfed. And um, the, the, the sea, which as a little toddler kind of threatens him, uh, well, it, it's, it's, it's more threatening to me at my age. So uh, it became for me a kind of image, a parable of uh, mortality. Yeah. And um, that, uh, and I wonder, but, you know, particularly in this pandemic, if uh, Stanley Harawa said to me, he said, I, I really feel sorry for preachers who've got to care for and be with people who think they don't have to die. Uh, and it's, you know, our problem is not so much that we might have to die during the pandemic. Our problem is that we might have to die, period. Yeah. And that we keep thinking, gee, if we could just get more funding and had a different president, we might could live forever um, w with enough uh, backup. Um, no. And, and so in that sense, uh, the death, uh, the fact that we're mortal and finite for any of our wonderful achievements, mm. uh, that's a truth that if the church doesn't tell you that, I'm not sure where you're going to get that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the story for me or the description of the scene, I loved when you turned it like that and you, and you said that he was leading you. And then if I recall correctly, the line that you use in, in the writing is that he is all future. And, and I see yeah. that sense of that, you know, the abyss or the, you know, what you're, walk, you're walking into. But I also felt a hope that, and I think this is where I connect with Bart and his kind of hopeful eschatology, right? The hopeful kind of things are moving towards the renewal of all things, not, not to just, you know, nothing. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that, and, and Christians believe, you know, we're yeah. not walking into an abyss. Yeah. Uh, we're not walking out into the sea and drowning, uh, but we're walking towards God. Yeah. Our God is drawing us. Uh, yeah. So, so good. So great. Uh, just to, as we close off here, I don't know if, you, you know, if you have some words of wisdom for us, well, you've had a lot already, but <laughs> how would, how would you, and I, it's interesting, you mentioned that you've mentioned the pandemic a few times. One of the things we're working through here in those that we uh, work with and maybe have some influence and back and forth is to try to help people see that while we are faced with our own mortality and something like this and the, re, and the reality that at any given time we could lose everything, that there's also some hope in coming out of this, that some things, you know, we could, we could work to change some things for the better. Um, but how would you, as we uh, say goodbye to you here, how would you spur us on? You've done a lot for people like us, and I know you know it from a distance, but that people read your work, come across your sermons, listen to the things you say. Um, what would you have us know as we seek our vocation, our called forth life? Send us off on some positive, happy note or something. Oh, <laughs> no pressure. Well, uh, it sounds like, you know, you're wanting a benediction and, and people my go. age, ought to, that's what we ought to be doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm about to say as somebody, you know, in the last years of my life, uh, uh, Wow, it's it's a great way to go. It's it's a great vocation. It's a great. It has been for me a great way to expand my life. Now, it, it's kind of easy for me to say that, in that I've gotten lots of affirmation and response yeah. to my ministry, and I know a lot of people who do it better than I, who get don't get that and get a, a very different reaction. Uh, but uh, I, I think I'll say that. Uh, Bart said, like, there's theology keeps having to be redone. It keeps having to be done over, including my theology. And I would say uh, one of my words has been to my students who think, who are saying things like, oh, I just, I don't know about the future and the church is going to come out of this so weak and they're just such big financial I don't deny the challenges, but I'll say, no, no, we'll come out of this with God. And uh, if we don't come out of it, we won't, it'll, it'll be with God. <laughs> and that since um, yeah. they know more about how to be, lead the church in the future than I, uh, they can't lead the same church I served. Uh, yeah. and, and it's not only because COVID-19 is changing a lot of stuff, it's because we got a living God. Yeah. That just keeps moving and changing and adapting and and uh, uh, rising again. And so it's a full time uh, to be in ministry. It is. Uh, yeah. it because is. we, because Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I Great you to be with you Canadians. 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, listen, could you shoot me that uh, Catherine Robinson quote? Oh, yes, of oh, course. Marilyn, I, Ro yeah. Marilyn Robinson, I mean. Yeah, I will. And um, yeah, yeah that, that'd, be, that'd be great. And, Thank you so much. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. We'll keep track of your work and others and, and all the best down there in uh, North Carolina. Well, and, thank uh, you. I've, I've uh, really had some great experiences of watching uh, the, the church in action in Canada. Uh, we'll, and we'll, uh, we'll be praying for you in your country because I, I don't know that we'll have where are you. Sorry, go ahead. Where are you serving now? Are you? I'm not, I'm not working at a church right now. Um, that's uh, that's a whole other story. But uh, well, I'm, I knew you yeah. had left one situation. I just didn't know where you were, what you were doing. We, have, we formed kind of a nonprofit and doing some other things and working. Uh, we've done oh, some good. work with, with Jay Lynn's church. We've done some stuff up there and helped them out, and they've helped us out. And so there's all kinds of things on the go. Uh, keeping close contact with Jason Biasi as well. And uh, good. And well, you know. He admires you so much. I love working at the church. I, I was working at the church I was at. I was there for 25 years. Um, and many of the reasons wow. your stories resonate with me is I've had some similar experiences, positive and negative. Um, and I don't mean this uh, out of bitterness or whatever, but I think it's vocation and call. Um, I, I'm grateful for every day I had there, but uh, by God's grace, there hasn't been one day or one minute where I wished I was still there. <laughs> That's beautiful. So it's on to the next thing, right? That's, um, yeah. I uh, was attempting to comfort uh, yeah. a student who's gotten terminated at his church uh, after a few years. And uh, I said, you know, uh, uh, you weren't the best student I ever had. And, and he said, Oh, I'm sure not. And I said, uh, I, you know, I thought you'd do well in ministry, but I, I said, frankly, I underestimated you. I didn't know how well you would do. And, and I said, I feel a sense of guilt that I never got fired from a church. And I don't know why, cause I preached the gospel best <laughs> I knew how. I mean, I, I really, Harwa says, you're so damn charming. They idiots, they don't know what you're talking about. I think there's something in that. Why <laughs> doesn't have that problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but I do, I, I, that is amazing. I also, I also think it's amazing that uh, I had a friend that I'd run into every year at the Festival Homiletics Presbyterian, and I saw him, he'd been at this church 15 years and yeah. he was saying I've had the worst year I've ever had and he says and I said well tell me about it he said I'm ashamed it started over the color we painted the front door and he said I'm so embarrassed about it but he said it spread from there to this committee and that and everything oh. I said oh I'm I'm so sorry Rich and and I said uh uh are you telling me that you served these people for 18 years and you get into something like this, that means nothing. And he said, you know, that's a stupid question. You know the answer to that question. No, it doesn't mean a damn thing. No, no. Oh. Said they still come down. And he said, there have been times in this argument, I've said, remember me? I'm the one that like visited your mother and held her hand just before she died. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm that guy. And he said, that gets you nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for you to go. You got to go. You're right about that sometime. Yeah, thank thank you so much. Okay. We look forward to talking to you. All right. We'll, Bye. We'll touch. God bless. Bye. -bye. Okay.
Well, that was Will Willeman. Uh, fantastic conversation. Allison and I with Will and uh, still to this day, I mean, he's someone who is known as one of the best uh, speakers and preachers in well, as, as they say in his book, in the English language, but certainly in the United States, um, preaching and giving eulogies at the National Cathedral and other places. And, and so we're really grateful for Will joining us. So um, any, any comments on anything you heard before we sign off the episode? I, first off, I just want to appreciate that uh, you, it was you and I that were at that uh, conference together where we first saw Will. <laughs> and uh, I still remember he was talking about the Ten Commandments, that they're not a legal document, they're a worship document. And I think one of the things I appreciate about Will, and there's a handful of preachers that have done this to me. Uh, he's, he's one of them. Walter Weingren was another one. He is another one we heard at one of those conferences. We heard him in something like, I don't know, 1998. And I can remember that he was talking about that. Yeah. I, there's probably a handful of sermons where I could do that with. Um, and I think Will has, this, I, I appreciated him talking about the role of, of preaching, that that is the primary role of the pastor, not to be a nice person, not to do pastoral care, though, I mean, that is a role, but the chief role is to be yeah, he, he would say if, if, the person, if the person can't preach, then you've, you've got kind of an issue. I mean, not, not yeah. all kind of ministers would, would put it that way, but I appreciate that he fits neither really on the right or the left. In our kind of times, yeah. that's always refreshing. I mean, we need both. Obviously, we need all of that, but not the polarization. And he, I mean, the way he'll joke about it is he upsets people across the spectrum. He's part of the United Methodist Church in the States, which wouldn't be known as like the straight out like evangelical church, but he would be on probably more the conservative side of the United Methodist Church. So he, you know, people get upset at him in the United Methodist Church, but then certainly evangelicals would, you know, question a lot of the things he has to say. It, it, there is, there is something very much about like in our conversations, like he, he is very, He's very engaging and very, very compassionate in how he he chooses to speak. Yeah, he is. He's very present. Like yeah. he he very much he sees people, yeah. and I I mean I don't know if if that's very pastoral to me that I know that he he really like focuses on preaching, but there is part where in how he chooses to engage people and how he chooses to speak to people, I'm like there's a lot of pastoral care in that. He seems looking, generous to me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think looking back to where we started this conversation with the music performances and talking about how people, how is it that these performers can engage with the crowd? And you mentioned the, the empathy thing. Yeah. Even, the, even in the congregations he served where he, he talks about them as being, you know, they were rednecks, they were racist, they were, he still had empathy for them. Yeah. Like they were still humans. He didn't dehumanize them even as he disagreed with them. Well, and, and I think that's, that's what really... he brings out about Jesus is Jesus yeah. disagreed with people. I mean, one of his, I don't think it was in this, I think it was in his book that I, that I was listening to where basically his question is, how has Jesus disrupted you today? And yet yeah. he does it with such an empathy. Is, I mean, he's really into Bart and he was into Karl Bart long before I knew who Karl Bart was. And so I've obviously fallen in love with, with Bart's teaching and theology. And then when you find that some of your people who were kind of, you know, lesser heroes through the years, uh, you, it makes sense to me now. I go, 
oh, that's why I connected with him because he was onto the stuff that I didn't know kind of existed before. And when he gives that story about his grandson on the beach and he realizes that, that his grandson is all future and he talks about himself walking into like the abyss of death, so to speak, but that there is still this hopefulness that yeah. the future, there is future and that for us, Christian faith is always about future and it's not fear. And there is also, I love that, like that story of him as a boy with Dr. Herbert or whatever, the, the pastor who, who yeah, said, with the tie time, and... right? <laughs> finding the one person who feels left out or visibly, at least that, you know, is feeling left out and including them that, but yet he, his love for people comes with this like really strong humor at the same time of not avoiding what is ridiculous about people. Right. No, very much so. <laughs> like he is, he is very willing to um, observe and point out, I think, some people's struggles and flaws. Um, and and, own. But he, he, as you say, he is very willing to do that to himself, which is, so, which is really refreshing. So the, uh, <laughs> I was intrigued. I, I mentioned during the interview that uh, the show uh, Afterlife, uh, Ricky Gervais' show that's on Netflix, it's second season right now. There's tons in it that's like crazy and ridiculous. And but the heart of it is this guy and Ricky Gervais, famously like atheist and seems to be anti-faith and stuff. But Ken, like you, you connected back to the um, the video clips at the beginning and the crowds and the empathy. Uh, Ricky Gervais, if you watch Afterlife, you realize that he has a, something. It, it's like a love for humanity. He draws these crazy characters and everything Gervais has ever done. There's a nutty, ridiculous kind of sidekick, which shows how much he, he, you know, recognizes the humanity in all people, even ridiculous people, so to speak. Yeah. So when I mentioned to Will Williman, the show after, and he's like, oh yeah, oh no, I do watch that. I, I enjoy it or whatever. My, my, my wife has stopped His watching. His wife won't watch it with him. Because she says there's, she already has one cynic in her life or something. <laughs> so we really appreciated it. Um, yeah, Ken, we do remember that back to all those years ago and uh, glad that he's still working, writing and speaking. We recommend uh, to our listeners to pick up kind of anything he's written. Um, you'll notice that he writes kind of two kind of styles. One is a little more academic and you'll be able to tell. And the other style is very accessible. Um, and uh, you know, really easy to read. More he writes more of that than, than the other. So well, with eighty books, there's got to be something for everyone in there, books, right? He's got to be writing tonight as we speak. Thank Probably. You so We're signing okay. off for another episode of Rector's Covered Pandemic Editions. <laughs>